This is Stimulus. If you see patients for a living and find it's not always so easy doing the job, we get you and we've got your back. My name is Rob Orman. I spent 20 years as an emergency physician and now as a certified coach, I help physicians get unstuck, recalibrate their work-life balance, rediscover the joy in work, and sometimes find new careers and creative outlets. We produce the Stimulus Podcast to give you tools to find more fulfillment in your life and medical practice and do it all with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. And as promised, on today's show, the final episode of 2021, special guest, you heard him last show, the in-between episode where he gave an incredible monologue on nonviolent communication from MCRIT, from On Deeper Reflection, from Long Island, New York, Dr. Scott David Weingart. What's up, Rob? So great to be talking to you again. Oh, Scott, this is just fantastic. The last show of the year for us on stimulus. I'm not sure when this is going to come out on, on deeper reflection. I suspect in a, in a similar time, but I'll tell you, man, this is uh, it's a great gift for me. Cause when we get the podcast together, just such a treat. Absolutely. Deeper stimulus joint right here. Deeper. Oh yeah, that's right. This is a deeper stimulus joint. I like it. I think that's got some legs. All right. Listeners, a note before jumping in, I'm going to take a sub Radical, I guess I'd say for about a month from Stimulus to finish up work on the new website, which actually Scott and I are creating the um, new website for this show and it's going to combine the show and coaching and all of the other things that we're doing here. Actually, thank you, Scott. Thanks for all the help. Yeah, all the good things you do need to be uh, exemplified. <laughs> all right. So when the next show comes out, it will be the launch and the announcement of that site. I'm going to save the name of it because it's actually up, but it's not ready for prime time quite yet. So if you're wanting to catch up on some old episodes, now is the time. And see that right there, that reframe, Scott, that's when you make a bug into a feature. Boom. <laughs> Pure stoicism, buddy. <laughs> All right. So this is going to be part two of our dive into nonviolent communication. And I, I think for the sake of this conversation, brevity, we'll call it NVC. Right. Yeah, sounds, sounds cool. Yeah. Okay. Acronyms are, you know, business douche speak. That's <laughs> what we have to go with. <laughs> it's probably a drinking game in medical school for how long will it take before Scott Weingart says the word douche on a. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to be very drunk by the end of that night. <laughs> All right. You know what? If you missed part one, the primer that we were just talking about, it is on both a stimulus and on deeper reflection. It is a deeper stimulus joint, borrowing from the Spike Lee terminology is fantastic. So this episode will make a lot more sense having listened to that one. So proviso provided, you know what, if you don't want to listen to that one, and you haven't heard it, we just want to get into this one, you'll learn something too. So let's jump to it. So what are we going to talk about today, Robbie? All right. So I've got a couple of vignettes, couple of scenarios to break down some nonviolent communication. And but I wanted to start out with, I was, I was listening to your monologue again last night before this show, preparing for it. And notice one thing missing, and that is, what is the violence in communication that nonviolent communication is seeking to remedy? And here's what I take away from the book and the seminars. And um, cur curious on your th on your thoughts on this. So, violence in communication refers to speaking in a way that is manipulative, blaming, shaming guilting, and maybe even above all, judging. 
What do you think for a summation? Yeah, all of those things. Those are the obvious ones. It goes, I think, even deeper at a more subtle level. It's really the violence is also attributing other people as the cause of our emotional states. Mm. So, you know, the things you mentioned are the overt ones, but the deeper one is really simply thinking that we're not responsible for every bit of our own emotions. And we're going to get to that in our story about pajama day. We have full ownership and agency in what happens inside of us. No one's causing anything to happen into us. It might, might trigger something, but we're the final arbiter of what plays out. Absolutely. And another aspect of this is once we get into who is right, we've already lost. Yeah. You know, and that, that requires clarification because what you said is absolutely true. Because there are scenarios where one person's right and the other's wrong. Most of the time it's great, but there are scenarios where one person's right or wrong. It's just that you can't succeed in communicating and getting to that point. You can't get both. You could either have communication to get closer to what you want and need, or you could prove you're right. But you you almost always can't get both. When you say that, I think of a fact that I am right or wrong about this fact. But when it's about a feeling, there's no right or wrong. Absolutely. If, If someone calls you an asshole, that's wrong. Just objectively, they have given a a verbal expression of animosity. You could dwell on that for 15 minutes, or you could actually get to communication and get your needs done, but you can't do both. So you're absolutely right. Feelings have no objective right or wrong feelings. They're really just your body's way of saying that your homeostasis is off. I mean, they, they really deserve no more credibility than that except for the outsized effect they have on our actions and motivations. But there is some degree of objective reality. People are right and wrong. People do do things that most of society would consider bad sometimes. It's just forcing that admission from your interlocutor just rarely is going to give you what you want. This came up in the book club. And at the end, shall we reveal what our next book is going to be? Yeah, yeah. I think people would love to hear that. Okay. That If you are discussing the past in these conversations, generally in conflict resolution or in kind of heated situations, you've already lost. Yeah, it's the same thing. People have track patterns. People have situations in which they are late every single time you you make a, a lunch date with them. Still objective reality to say you're always late. It's just it completely derails the conversation. It's just... A lot of the nonviolent communication path is deciding to optimize communication to get your needs met rather than satisfying negative emotions. I think of this situation, this happened years ago, and I was at the end of my shift. This is a 12-hour shift, and it was, I just got hammered. It was just like a couple minutes till the shift was over. Next doc was about to be there. And I... I think I had a like a stroke patient I was going to go see really quickly. And one of the nurses came up to me and said, hey, there's a patient I think that is septic in this other room. Uh, stroke, septic stroke. <laughs> okay. Uh, I said, hey, just have the next guy go see him. Just get things started. Whatever you think, get things started. And that was it. She wouldn't talk to me for like two months. And I said, what is going on? There's clearly something going on here. And she said, quote, you're a bad doctor. You don't see sick patients when they need to see sick patients. And I don't think that you make good decisions. Oh, man. 
And I was like, whoa, well, what is this based on? When you're not, you're not able to identify who's sick and who's not sick. And I'm thinking about all of the times that we've had resuscitations together. I mean, this is, yeah, we work together a lot. I think nothing had really came up. It was kind of this one event. Where do you go forward from that? I was thinking about that last night as we were going to do this episode today. That was some of the more violent communication that I had had ever, you know, <laughs> like that. Yeah. You're a bad doctor. You make bad decisions. And totally judging. So maybe a better way to say that when you didn't see that patient who I thought was septic, I felt angry because I need to have my patients well cared for. Would you be willing to see these patients next time I ask or something like that? I mean, obviously that's very structured, but maybe a more nonviolent way to express it. Yeah. You know, Rob, when I hear that story, to me, the violence is not what she said to you. That that's just rolls off your back if you're really in the mindset of a stoic or a nonviolent communicator. Yeah. The violence is that she harbored this for two months without yeah. talking to you based on a non-objective judgment. That's the true violence. And this is why I say like the real violence is, is far deeper. It's not people cursing at you or screaming or not getting their needs met. They're just childish in their emotional expression. That's fine. That's not violent. You could let that roll off. Violence is people that will look at objective reality and create an entire overlay of their own perceptions of your motivations and then judge you on it and then actually behave predicate on that rather than the objective reality. That's the true violence that schools like cognitive behavioral therapy attempt to overcome. So how would, how would you have played that out in an NVC way? I know I'm just springing this on you right now. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. I think about, and I think about, we both talk about this a lot, creating that space between stimulus and response and my reaction, the thing I can't control, my limbic brain, my amygdala firing was, you know, just bubbling up. Okay. <laughs> Don't respond in a way that is commensurate to what's happening. Take a breath and said, well, wow, what do you mean by that? And then that was just kind of the litany of the airing of yeah. the grievances. So if you were in my position, what would yeah. be your response? Well, I mean, I don't know what my response would be because I might be just in the same place you, but the NBC response, you know, the giraffe language response would be when I hear you say that, I'm so sad because I need you to know that I care about your patients and my patients. I care about our patients so desperately that if any sick patient came in, I would give everything to take care of them. So would you mind just telling me what you base that comment on so I could understand? We're going to get into some of the uh, more conflicty situations in a bit, but I want to get into the opposite. And that is how to give a compliment, NVC mm. style. You know, you got into this a little bit in, in the monologue. All right. So the formula that we've addressed a bit, observation, feeling, need, and request. When I see X, I feel Y because I need Z. Would you be willing to do whatever? Something like that. So last night I was texting you and I was sending you a compliment. And As you often do. <laughs> You're a really <laughs> yeah. nice guy, Armin. No, you know, we're, we're, we're good friends, man. I admire the stuff that you do. And I'll hear you say something and be like, wow, and it'll affect me. You know, I'll, I'll feel it inside and I'll just immediately send off exactly what I'm feeling. And oftentimes it's what I think of you, you know, like I was um, uh, thinking, wow, you're gifted, you're cool or, or, or something. 
those are all judgments. So this had to do, I was listening to a, to a, to a podcast that you were doing. I asked you if you were doing it extemporaneously, you know, just off, off the top of your head and you were, and I was awestruck by your ability to do that. And I was awestruck by it because frankly, it's, it's not something that I can do just so adroitly, you know, like, like you do. And so I was, I was typing in, you're amazing or something, or like you're an incredible podcaster, but then I caught myself because we're deep in NVC practice here. And this is contrary to NVC, even though it's a compliment, because that's jackal speaking. That was, I was like, well, I can't believe I'm Jacqueline Weingart <laughs> right now. In the best possible way, in the nicest possible way. It, it is, but you know, I mean, and granted, listeners are not saying completely change the way you think and speak or whatever, but this is just things to, to think about. But the reason that it's jackal speaking is that it's a moralistic judgment. Even though it's positive, it reinforces the idea that the negative exists. And even further, I am the judge that knows the difference. And then what is the value there in being told what you are? What's the value there? And even worse, you know what? You might believe it. Yeah. If you give people the power to judge you positively, you're giving them the power to judge you negatively. And you can't have one without the other. And that, that's really the key. And, and by the same token, to judge others, even in a complimentary fashion, is dangerous. It's giving you an outsized and unrealistic power over other people. So you're actually violently communicating, even though you're giving them absolutely positive affirmation. You know where I see this the most is in reviews when you speak at a conference. The things that are said are 99% violent communication. Yeah. If you know, you're going to give feedback, it's often not going to be positive. Even the positive stuff, it's a judgment. They're the man. They're the best. They bring the bacon or they're overwrought. So listeners, uh, you know, many of you will hear Scott and I speak <laughs> sometime in the next year. <laughs> Consider whether even if, if it's a positive or a, if it's a negative, here we go right now, this year, right now, if nothing else, let's change the face of how people evaluate others on those forums. If you yeah. can do it in an NVC way, when you sa said X, I felt Y because I need this. When you talked about how to cut the neck in a cricothyroidotomy, I felt excited because I need to learn that for my patients. Or when you delivered that diatribe, <laughs> I think it's a judgmental <laughs> when, you when you delivered that diatribe uh, or, or whatever, you know, I, I felt angry because something. So yeah, that's really helpful rather than you suck or you're great. Yes. And you know, the compliment side of it, it's super helpful and it's a better way and it goes along with uh, the Dweck ideas on growth mindset. But where it really comes is something akin to compliments, which is evaluations, just as you alluded to on the speaking evaluations. But especially when you're evaluating staff or residents or learners or colleagues, if you want your evaluation to actually have any positive good in their lives, you can't judge because they'll discount the bad. They'll get nothing from the good. Because if you say something good, they don't know what they actually did you know, it's, it's very akin to dog training. If you just keep saying good dog without a direct connection to behavior, they don't learn anything. Um, so you have to say, when I saw you do X, I felt really proud and happy. And then they know 
wow, the positive feelings I'm getting, the dopamine hits are because I did that behavior. And that's really key, but it prevents anyone from pushing back and saying, well, this person's an asshole and they don't know me. And they just think uh, I'm a bad nurse because they're an evil, you know, manipulative person versus when I heard you speak to the patient that way, it really made me feel sad because we are uh, a place that is supposed to take good care of patients regardless of, you know, their socioeconomic background or whatever. It's impossible to argue with that now. You know, they can't argue with what you saw or heard. And they can't argue with how you feel because that's yours. And they, they might be able to argue with the need if your need is a poorly expressed one, but it really becomes inarguable feedback in most cases. That's so much more potent. Just to tie up the loop. So what I did end up texting Scott, when I heard that monologue, I was awestruck. Yeah. You know, the beauty of NVC is that it doesn't have to be prescriptive. You learn it in the absolute locked in observations, feelings, needs, requests, but they all fall off once the intent is understood and you don't have to sound like a robot. So the the need was implicit. I was watching a Marshall Rosenberg NVC talk last night on receiving gratitude. And so often when we receive gratitude or when gratitude is on our way, our inner jackal comes up and Oftentimes it's dismissive, like, ah, it's not, you know, nothing to it. Oh, that's, that's nothing. Or it's so easy. Our inner jackal does not think that it deserves gratitude. Absolutely. Yeah. Inner voice NVC is for many people, probably more important than external voice NVC. One of the things that I I talk about, I give a, a talk on the wrong kind of grit. And it's essentially about how to build long-term resilience in your medical practice. And just a, a small part of that is on receiving gratitude and being open to receiving gratitude. Because when you are open to that, from a psychological standpoint, makes you feel good. And from a physiologic standpoint, you have release of TNF-alpha, you have decrease in inflammatory markers. The reception of gratitude, being open to that, being the giraffe with big ears, a big heart, and just fully receiving it, listening more than talking, that is going to serve you so well. Definitely. Let's get to emergency empathy. Okay. Because I think that this is an incredibly effective tool. I'm not sure what your take is on this. I frankly find this easier to deploy in point of care. Because NVC, in some ways, it it takes so much practice to really be adept at it and to feel comfortable with it. And emergency empathy is part of NVC, but not so much in observation, feeling, need, request. It's not so much that. It's just doing it in a simple fashion. You know, when we were talking about this at book club, one of the listeners was saying, so essentially you're manipulating people and using a Jedi mind trick on them. And I guess in a way it is a little bit of a Jedi mind trick, but it essentially, it turns down the temperature and allows the individual who is needing emergency empathy to cool down a little bit and just think about what they have going on inside. I I think it's one of the most potent parts of the strategy and for many of the reasons you mentioned, but really what essentially what you're saying is I hear you, which is 99% of people who are angry or upset. That's what they need to hear. And in almost every argument that goes astray, you will find the exact moment in which you made them feel unheard. 
if you can't do anything else, you could go with the Chris Voss and FBI hostage negotiator techniques of simply mirroring their last three words back to them. You're getting the most of the potency of emergency empathy. Now, you know, the way it's prescribed in NVC is a little bit more powerful simply because you're bringing things to an emotional level, but then you're very quickly, because one of the people during the book club asked this is like, why can't you just say how they're feeling, right? Why can't you say, um, are you angry? And the problem is that that can help, you know, especially if you get across with your body language and eye communication that you actually care, but it could easily be misconstrued as, wow, you're an angry motherfucker. You better shut up, right? Like it, it could go either way. But if you say, are you angry because you need to get seen and you feel like you're being ignored, that's different. They can't interpret that as you're accusing them of unnecessary rage as long as you add the needs. And it doesn't matter if you're wrong or right. It shows compassion. It shows a desire to understand. And that's really why it's such a good diffusing strategy is people just need to feel heard. They need to feel actualized. And when you say what they're, you perceive their feelings and needs are, even if you're wrong, that's what is related to them. It is NVC in the way that it focuses it down to feeling and need that you are perceiving. It's primer coat. This isn't finish coat. I, I think of this as, hey, best guess. Best guess yep. to see what happens. Feeling and need. So you're on the phone. And a lot of times this happens when you're on the phone. And you have a consultant who is angry or frustrated or not loving. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just say that. <laughs> and I say, why don't you call me back when you know what's going on with the patient? All right. I don't have time for this. Oh, are, are, are you angry because you feel like I'm not respecting your time? I'm not, I'm not angry. I'm just frustrated because you're not working up the patient. Oh, yeah. It sounds like you really are frustrated because you feel I haven't done the things I was supposed to do before getting you on the phone. Exactly. And you never do. You never do these things. So it sounds like it's not just been once, but you're angry at not just today, but maybe uh, a whole bunch of times this happened, not just with me, but probably with other people in the department. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Oh, uh, way to diffuse. <laughs> way to diffuse. Um, but you got to be egoless. It's the higher level, right? Like when Marshall Rosenberg talks about the four levels, the, the lowest level, not lowest in terms of, you know, people are bad people. It's just the lowest in terms of it's damage to your psyche is you blame yourself, right? And then a slightly higher level, though, still deleterious is you blame the other person, right? They're an asshole. Third level is you care about both people's needs and express yourself nonviolently, but you're not willing to put aside your own feelings and needs which is fine. I mean, that, if you, that's the only level you achieve in life, you're better than like 95% of the population. But the, the fourth level is when you are so of the point of understanding that anything negative someone is saying to you is just a undeveloped ability to express their own feelings and needs. It puts you in a position, and I guess that is where it kind of becomes a Jedi mind trick because you are in some ways infantilizing the person, but you're doing it with the best possible intent. And we're all infants at some point. None of us are perfect at all times. But uh, you just realize, okay, there's no reason for me to be angry because this person just is not good at expressing themselves at this particular moment. And you become the better communicator and you help them to vent out the things that are preventing them from listening. I'm curious how NBC would work in, in this situation. A consulting surgeon will come in and like a trauma resus. And this is going to be a judgmental word, totally NBC, but kind of imperious and 
just change the vibe so that it's not collaborative, but it's more everyone's sort of an opponent or trying to establish dominance. And you want to defuse and say, hey, we're all a team. I mean, I don't don't care who makes what decision, uh, you know, as long as right decision is made. But, you know, you are, you know, dealing with another person who has a, a lifetime of their own particular issues and they're walking into this and want to, you know, maybe they have some fear, they want to establish some dominance or it's like, you know, these ER docs are a bunch of dumbasses. They don't know to do anything. And it's a, okay. So there you are. So you're at the head of the bed and you are doing your intubation on this trauma patient and you kind of see all this is going on and you're trauma team leader. How does it play out? I don't think you can win in the moment because NVC has many good parts, but rapidity is not one of them. Even though the emergency empathy has the word emergency in there, it's not a emergency in the sense of it's going to instantly diffuse situations. It really requires some forethought and some time to communicate in a safe place. The emergency empathy in that point might be deciding, is it really worth it to fight at that moment? You know, Taking the person aside afterwards and talking to them, you could really have a good NBC conversation. I think in that circumstance, you're really going to win. Um, in general, those people are pattern players. They're, it's not just once in a while. They're going to do it every time. So you have opportunities to correct it, but it's really tough in the moment, um, especially when there's not been the rapport established. I don't think NBC is the way to win on that one. That's funny you say that. I was, I was talking with uh, a CMO the other night. We were t- talking about some of the challenges that they face with medical staff and talking about like sort of like the pyramid of needs. It was like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and relationship hygiene came up as one of the most important things to focus on with docs because that is so lacking. Kind of what you describe in that situation that they're they're pattern players, that the relationships are universally toxic. And this is how they interact. And that is a long extraction or a long process of healing if they even want to, right? You got to want to do it. Yeah. You know, the easier way to deal with the exact point you made, but flip it around a little bit is in general, it's really difficult. I've found a few in my life, but very, very, very few, like less than I can count on one hand, people that have that attitude and are living happy, joyous lives. Right. Um, it, it's not an isolated thing. They genuinely have pervasive aspects to their personality. And that allows you to have some internal empathy for them and maybe not feel the need to have the confrontation. Because if they're acting this way, I generally feel like Wow, through fate alone, because they they are not the root of their problems. You know, they don't have any free will in my mind. Uh, they're living probably a pretty sad life. They're not experiencing a, a calm and joyous life if that's their behavior pattern, and that that makes me feel a little bit better. I'm so relieved that you're saying that NVC would be very difficult in in that situation because I was racking my brain thinking, how would you do this? From my perspective, it's exactly as you say. It's point of care compassion. It's just as I want to be happy. I want them to be happy as well yep. and really mean it. It diffuses your own internal um, fisticuffs to say, screw you. You're not coming in here and being like that. And I have found very few consultants when they get point of care compassion who are able to continue at least at a high level of, boy, I guess I'll, I'll use your vernacular of uh, douchebaggery, but yeah. that, that is that is judgmental. But um Changing your internal frame, I, I find, is one of the only ways to do that because you're not going to change their internal frame by just explaining things. 
as you were saying that, what occurred to me is that it, it does diffuse you because you're also empowering yourself. Because if you're able to get in the mindset of how could I give them this point of care compassion you talk about, it you can't also be lashing out and saying incredibly negative things. It, you can't do both at the same time. If you yourself put yourself in the mindset of how do I diffuse this situation, you've automatically diffused yourself at the same moment. What is the deal with the last three words? The last three words are when you want someone to feel heard, but you want them to continue speaking because the longer they speak, they kind of poop themselves out on their tirade in general, and you could string someone along. And if you're in a hostage situation, the longer they're on the phone, the more chance you're going to have a successful negotiation. Let's say they were stringing out a tirade and they want to tell you that you guys don't know how to read EKGs, et cetera, et cetera. Then you could simply mirror those last three words and let them get it all out of their system. So last three words technique, mirroring technique is for when you want them to keep talking versus emergency empathy, where you're going to make them feel heard by a direct uh, observation of what you think is going on with them. So we don't know how to read EKGs. Exactly. Exactly. Some of them sound so obvious when you say them, you're like that this, they're going to pick up on it, but no, no one ever picks up on it that you're just saying the last three words they said. But if you want them to keep going for whatever reason, then that's the way to do it. It's simply mirror reflect. You had mentioned this before in the very beginning of this part on emergency empathy. So Lon Setnick, he was actually on stimulus a couple episodes ago, said in the chat when we were talking about this at the book club, he said, I'm at a relatively small hospital where I know the people I'm struggling with. I like to say, quote, I'm picking up a lot of frustration right now. I'm thinking I called looking for help, but somehow I upset you. Help me understand what's going on for you. He said, that's always worked. It doesn't include the guess at the need. I'm wondering about comparing these approaches, including or not the guess at the need. No, he has, he has all of it there. Now, some of it's implicit and that's the thing. And I, I can't stress this cleanly enough is you don't have to be a robot, but he got everything across. He, he stated their feeling and he stated their need. He just didn't say it overtly, but their need is that they need to be respected. And he made that abundantly clear by saying that I have upset you. Well, that is implicitly saying that somehow inadvertently I have made you feel disrespected. So he's absolutely, that's 100% NBC. And that's really the key is you don't have to be prescriptive. We also got this question at the book club. Can you talk more about access to issues in these situations and access to being personality disorders. Because access to, as the question went, can really twist situations in an unexpected way. Yeah. Access to is tough. Um, you know, and so many of the people that come to the emergency department, uh, Peter Rosen, I think was famous for saying that 95% of the people there are somaticizing, but you just don't know which 95%. And, and that's really the problem of our specialty is sick, not sick. But the commonality of access to is a misperception of objective reality. So anything that grounds a agreement on actual events rather than perceptions of false motivation will immediately bring the conversation to a better valence. All right. I want to switch gears to pajama day. Okay. Can we, let's hear it. Can we talk about pajama day? Please. All right. So my daughter's high school has a pajama day every year, and she asked me if I had any flannel PJs. It just so happens that we have a family tradition that every Christmas Eve, we give each other 
PJs as a gift. So I had some blue flannel plaid PJs in a bag ready to rock for Christmas Eve in the wrapper because they'll be fresh for the <laughs> Of course, uh, I mean, you would want unfresh pajamas. Fresh, fresh. And she felt a little sheepish about it. Now I said, look, it's no big deal. They're just PJs. Have fun with them. Bring them back. We'll wash them, rewrap them. No problem. And I could tell that she was feeling kind of bad. I could see it in her face. And she said, quote, I'm really sorry I made you give me your PJs. And I said, you're very sweet to say that, but you can never make me do anything. It's my choice whether I do something or not. It's my choice whether I'm going to feel something or not. That's all on me. You can never make me, you can never make anyone do anything ever. And it was like a record scratch (laughs) moment because that is how we think. And that is how we talk in society that you make me so mad or you made me do this. No, no one can make you do anything ever. Definitely. Yeah, no, I love that story so much. And getting into access too, I think that this is how NVC with cognitive behavioral therapy, it's all kind—it's all aligned. The Venn diagram overlap is incredible. Cognitive behavioral therapy, stoicism, NVC. You can't make me do anything because this is the quintessential essence of the internal locus of control. The borderline personality exists in the external locus of control exists in blaming everyone for everything that is happening to them. When you have agency or shift your frame, it takes intent, is an active frame shift to agency, then no one can make you do anything. You're talking about in the resource bay, as soon as you have that compassion for that other person, you know, you might be getting pissed off and you might be triggered by whatever they're doing, they're not making you do anything. And then as soon as he's like, you know, I have got, I've, I, I hope that they're happy. I want them to be well. You just took that situation and made it an internal locus of control. And now you own it. Absolutely. No, this harkens back to meta, which we talk about all the time, which is first you learn compassion and love sent out to the people you care about. But the real potency is the people that have done wrong by you, um, sending them love and compassion it's really where the power of that meditation comes from. All right, Scotty. Lastly, from an NVC standpoint, and I I hope I'm not betraying any confidence here, but you shared a story with me the other day that happened with a relative and it involved NVC. If it's too personal to share, I will edit this out. Yeah, no, I'm happy to talk about it. Okay, what? how did it play out? Yeah, so this is someone who I had a longstanding a history of just really bad interactions during conflict. You know, I, I really care about this person, but conflicts were always horrible because uh, there was so much psychodynamic overlay that made communication impossible. You know, I I would just have to disappear for you know three or four weeks until they simmered down, and then we could have real kind of communication. And uh, even trying NVC techniques did not work so well uh, because it just the person's too smart to 
not understand that in some ways they're being subtly and gently and compassionately manipulated because NBC is a manipulation. It's a nonviolent manipulation. It's a good manipulation. But uh, anyone who is astute will realize that they're being managed, right? Um, <laughs> and, and I finally had the breakthrough of uh, giving this person significant other the NBC book, and they were really happy to read it. And I had them referee the conversation. And in all the stumbling blocks that we would commonly come to, where I would be told by them, you know, I feel they, this is them speaking, I feel that you did this just to hurt me. And in the past, I'd say that that's not a feeling, that's a thought in which you create motivations that are your perceptions as the reason for my actions. And you don't know if they are or not. All you know is feelings and that's not a feeling. And they would say, but that is a feeling because I feel that way, you know, just utilizing the different meanings of these words. Um, and that's where I, it would fall apart. But since their significant other was there, having read the book, she chimed in and said, no, that's not a feeling. Feelings are things you actually feel as emotions. That's a thought. And having a third party to actually referee the NVC communication was game-changing. And this is one of the really most potent and useful conversations I'd ever had with this person. And Marshall Rosenberg speaks about this in the book as using NVC as a facilitator for really bad conflict. I mean, he went to horrible places, places where genocide was committed, places where uh, people were killed in war. And the NVC technique, as potent as it is for one-on-one -on -one communication, is the real path to facilitating conflict resolution. How have things been with that relative going forward? Oh, markedly uh, improved. And now they're actually, because of that conversation, willing to read the book. And I think only goodness can ensue from that as well, because seeing it in print, that th those things that we perceive as feelings are not, that alone dramatically changes the way conversations go. As soon as you start recognizing that sadness is a feeling, but uh, false attribution of motivation, which is you know the primary components of Axis 2, as you talked about earlier, is not. And we're not entitled to that. And you don't get to do that. And you don't get to blame people for your ideas of why they did wrong by you. Um, if, if you come to that as the sole thing you take from NBC, you've already like saved yourself three or four years of therapy. Personally, the fallacy of attribution has been the most potent medicine from NBC for me. I think actually makes it easier to feel compassionate towards others when you understand that they're not doing anything to you. Yeah. And, and in many circumstances, they actually aren't, you know? Yeah. You're creating your own narrative. Absolutely. Absolutely. In many circumstances, they had only good intentions and were misreading. And even when they do have bad intentions, it doesn't matter. It, it's still beneficial for you to give them the benefit of the doubt. Nothing bad ensues from it. It's not like you get a false reading of the world that leads you astray. You only benefit from assuming the best of people. All right, Scotty, it is time to reveal our next book club book. And listeners, we are going to release the invitation to the book club. And the book club is on Zoom. You don't have to fly somewhere. Although, you know what? I think Bend would be a nice destination for a book yeah. club once, uh, yeah. once COVID dies. <laughs> yeah, so in, in 2050. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to release the pre-registration to our newsletter groups. 
So sign up for the newsletters if you want that, because it's almost guaranteed to fill. And I said it filled up before a day. I mean, it, fill, it fills up within one hour, like, within an hour. So next book for the book club, nonviolent communication was yours. I have a couple in my hand. We've got, we've got a few for the year coming up. Next book is going to be Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg, personal game changer incredibly powerful, simple tools to adopt habits you want, get rid of habits you don't want. I'm going to do a little reveal here. I'll save this for the book club. So a lot of habit has to do with motivation and ability. And when there's high motivation and high ability, then something's going to happen. So I found that I was I'll say wasting a lot of time on my iPad scrolling and it was like a magnet. So my motivation was high because I think it it just is just connected to my dopamine release. And I would go through like the same 10 websites over and over again, watch soccer and Netflix. And I was thinking, I don't, I don't want to be on here, but I would find myself repeatedly on the couch with an iPad in my lap. Okay, motivation is going to remain high. What I need to do is to effectively and immediately change this is reduce my ability to use it. So it's like, okay, what is the one thing that I absolutely need the iPad for that I, I can't use anything else? And so I use my iPad for Zwift. On my bike trainer, I attach to my bike trainer and that's how I interact with the world. So I took my iPad to the garage, attached it to my bike and I left it there. So I no longer watch Netflix on my iPad or look at ESPN or any, like any of these other things. That's kind of more advanced habit theory. We're gonna get into some of the basics in, in the book club, but just using the knowledge of that book of, of saying, oh, okay, so this is how habit works. I either need to decrease my motivation, which is going to be impossible unless I take like ant abuse for, <laughs> for, my, for this or something or get some kind of hypnotherapy. I need to reduce my ability to use this. And this is why, you know, if you don't want to look at your phone for the first 30 minutes of your day, then take it out of your bedroom and turn it off and put it somewhere else. It's like motivation is going to be high. You need to decrease ability. Yeah, if you don't want to eat junk food, don't buy junk food. Yeah, you know, one of the challenges there, do you, you have a Trader Joe's nearby? Yeah. There's these little ice cream cones that they have yep. there. Have you had these things? Yep. It's like oh, just- we buy, we buy them all the time. Oh my gosh. They had peppermint just over the holidays. And I think, all right- uh, I won't get these next time I go to Trader Joe's. But <laughs> let me tell you, I do. And then, so I was eating one last night. <laughs> I thought, this is just so wonderful. Melissa and I look at each other and we just, we just each grab one. And she's a big fan of the vanilla. I like the vanilla and the chocolate chip kind of equally. And it's just, a, it is just such pleasure and joy. And it's just this tiny little thing. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that it's, uh, it's, it's throwing things out of whack. No, I, I think they're, they're the right size for, <laughs> for guilt-free snacking. All right, Scotty, let me turn on the closing music here. A little rhythm, little synth, little synth going. And I will say that is it for today. You made it to the end of the show, listeners. Congratulations. Fantastic. You are now part of the Stimulus team and the On Deeper Reflection team, both. 
And what most team members do is subscribe to the show or shows in this case, so you don't have to use that brain power to think about hitting it up every time you want to listen. It just autofills in your podcatcher. If you want to reach out about one-on-one coaching, you can do that at stimuluspodcast.com, soon to be the new website name, which we will reveal on the next episode. Until the next time, be well and keep on rocking.